today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the view from the top to empower the next generation of the workforce. I think as leaders, we just we need to be committed to people getting the opportunity for some of these meaningful learning experiences at all levels. Your technology modernization fund effort should be all hands on deck. I think it's really important that the CIO recognize that you need to get other departments involved. CFOs, very critical. You know, you got the operation folks. And leadership's job in ensuring better contracting. Taking the time, working your way through the contract, identifying those opportunities. You know, you need leadership encouragement to make sure that that happens. It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Labor Department's assessing more than 200 pitches to its Innovation Incubator program. Labor's Chief Technology Officer Sanjay Koyani tells FedScoop the incubator's focusing on expanding research and development for open government, digital products, and new technologies. Koyani says the agency's adopted 11 bots and it'll use more. Agencies that are behind in awarding enterprise infrastructure solutions contracts will probably have to use expiring contracts for another year, according to the General Services Administration's Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the IT category. Alan Hill says DOD, Homeland Security, Justice, and the Government Accountability Office all had unawarded task orders on EIS as of May 26th. Hill says he won't know the exact number of agencies, though, until the end of the fiscal year. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The connection between identity management and cyber will be in focus at the OctaGov Identity Summit 2022. Government and industry leaders will be at the conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City next Thursday, June 23rd. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 40 new U.S. Digital Corps fellows will start their assignments at 13 agencies later in June. It's the first group ever of Digital Corps fellows. Karen Britton is Chief Digital Officer at LMI. She's former Chief Information Officer in the Executive Office of the President at the White House. Karen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. My colleague John Hewitt-Jones writes on FedScoop.com, the launch of the new two-year fellowship was announced last summer with the intention of bringing early career software engineers, data scientists, and other technologists to federal service. I imagine one of the great values of a program like this, Karen, is not just what the technical expertise is that that person or people can apply to an agency, but the way they can help change the culture, right? To talk about, uh, to, to demonstrate this is what people are doing in other parts of the technology world and how to propagate that inside a federal agency. Yes, uh, you're exactly right. And and as people are looking at developing their careers, you know, gone are the days of uh, people coming in and working in one particular uh, area or organization for 20 to 30 years. We really want to, um, you know, seek out folks that have that exceptional education, knowledge, expertise, people who are really trying to um, develop and grow, and we want to nurture that talent, right, and and bring them to where we're seeing are these huge high-impact programs, uh, give them the value added that they need as part of the job experience and develop, but give them kind of that myriad of opportunities where they can come in, they can bring their expertise, 
grow within the program, but also deliver and serve the federal government, particularly as we are moving out again with great depth and speed in some of the instances um, that, that we see. The structure of this program is interesting to me, Karen. Uh, John Story says it's housed within the Technology Transformation Services at GSA, uh, partnered with OMB, OPM, CISA, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy to run the program. Is there a risk when you build something like this that you have too many cooks in the kitchen? Is structure important that this lives in TTS? These other organizations are helping, but maybe they don't own a piece of it. Yes, I think structure is very important when it comes to it because, again, you you need to have that combination of, I think, that exceptional technical research skills combined with like the strong leadership potential. So, you know, when we talk about um, folks in in the program, you certainly want to look at people who, you know, have that yearning for learning and, but you want to have that mix of technical project management, professional skills, leadership skills, and, and all of that. And so structure is going to be key. Folks that are coming in, they need to have the ability to grow along their professional development. They need to have mentoring, um, but they also need to have the curiosity of what takes part of the fellowship program on the, on the technical expertise, and also learn about uh, the solving some of what what's you know the real complex government challenges. And so, giving them the opportunity in these programs. To, to be successful and to learn and grow and to get that professional experience is going to be key. They, they really need to uh, have that, you know, flexibility, that intellectual capital, but also being able to navigate the program. And to your point, that's really where the structure needs to come into play. Mm-hmm. So they know with, with which who's going to provide that mentoring, who's going to provide that professional development who's going to give them the ability to navigate through the program so that they can grow. I mentioned that this is a two-year fellowship, and it makes me think of the old saying, it takes a year to 18 months for somebody that comes to work for the government to figure out where the cafeteria is. And so I wonder is, and the other side of that is that somebody in their early career is probably not going to work in one job, whether it's government or private sector for more than two years. So I wonder if that's a feature or a bug for a program like this, Karen. Well, I I think it's somewhat of a feature because, uh, yes, you're right. Gone are the days where somebody comes in, it used to be 20, 30 years. Even even five years is lengthy now um, in any one sector, any one organization construct. Uh, and I hear your point because in many cases, it takes about two to three years to really uh, be able to grasp your role, the responsibility, be able to execute and make a difference. And so with these high impact programs such as this, as much as we want we want to be able to give people the job experience. We want to you know, promote robust career development and give people kind of that myriad of opportunities and, and give them the opportunity to shine. But we want that part of it, there's a learning in that. And, and so as they grasp and take the, you know, some of these meaningful learning experience with them, 
we want them to have that opportunity to yet again make a difference. It is a lot to do with impact and grow and deliver and move on to the next level. So um, yeah, certainly with uh, the, the leaders that we're trying to grow and develop at all these variety of, of levels, we want them to be able to deliver in this, provide some impact in the time that they're in that role and be able to move on and grow. Here's the thing about this that I think is the most interesting and, and most encouraging, quite frankly. Uh, John writes, recruits for the program come from both leading undergraduate programs and alternative training pathways like apprenticeships, boot camps, and certificate programs to make the cohort as diverse as possible. Um, we think they're kind of the traditional categories that we think about, uh, uh, traditional aspects of diversity. Educational diversity is one that I'm not sure the government's really explored to the fullest extent that it could, is it? You're, you're exactly right, because not everybody comes up through tried and true. I've gone to a four-year university. I've graduated in a technical career, engineering. You have more and more people coming up through various cohorts, more and more, particularly when we think about some of our cyber community who are acquiring certifications and and looking at that as a way to grow through their career track. So I think we need to be committed to, to realize that there are different ways that people get into developing and into the, the leadership. And we need to look at the relevancy of the training aspect and and the the diversity in some of the opportunities, as you mentioned, you know whether it's co-op and 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 the like. So it's things don't always uh, things are not cookie cutter, let's say. But I think as leaders, we just we need to be committed to people getting the opportunity for some of these meaningful learning experiences at all levels that people do need to be associated with leaders who are mentors, who can help them get the relevant training through a a variety of ways, opportunities, and just kind of know that this is going to help continue to advance these career, but continue to diversify what we need to see, and that is in our future leaders. Karen Britton, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Francis. It's so great to see you again. You can read more about the Digital Core Fellows in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, a programming note. Next Monday, the Daily Scoop Podcast will observe the Juneteenth federal holiday. I'll be with you the rest of this week, off Monday, back Tuesday, June 21st, with a brand new Daily Scoop Podcast. The executive director of the Technology Modernization Fund says TMF board will award all the money in the fund by the end of this fiscal year. The fund has around $750 million to award. Irv Dennis is former chief financial officer at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. He's author of the book Transforming a Federal Agency, Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. Irv, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to see you again. What is the CFO's role in working with the CIO and the rest of the organization to develop a proposal for something like the Technology Modernization Fund? Welcome, Irv. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate uh, you having me on. 
the Technology Modernization Fund is a wonderful tool for agencies to consider various aspects of uh, IT modernization. HUD was actually one of the early recipients of, uh, of the funds. We got between, I think it was 15 to $20 million. And uh, IT modernization can cover an awfully broad area. You can use it for operations. You can use it for security, whether it be cyber, et cetera. Um, and I think it's really important, like we did at HUD, and I talk about this in my book, the importance of the CIO and the CFO working very closely together. Um, you know, IT improvements and modernization is never just about IT. Uh, IT modernization is all about business process changes, and that's really, really critical. Uh, similar to the CIO, maybe even more so, the CFO has a broad range of all of the operations and the ongoings from a budget standpoint, from an operations, from controls. So they see the, the, the whole spectrum of the agency, and it's really, really critical for the CFO and the CIO to be working together. And I, I will tell you, I can't tell you how broad that TMF fund is and can, can be. Um, it's a very generous program, and it's a proposal process, I think, as you mentioned, and it's, uh, and it's you know, it was competitive. It may be less so now, but early on, we spent a lot of time in that proposal process. What did you do in that process to demonstrate return on investment, basically? Because it strikes me that's what you're going for in a TMF yes. proposal. You, you want to convince the board that you'll get more bang for the buck with this one than with all the other ones there. Can some 130 some proposals or something like yes. that? Yes. The, uh, that can be done in this in several ways. You can do it by showing a savings of dollars through uh, just cheaper technology. You can do it through savings of dollars through manpower. And if you go, or you could show just improvement in, uh, in the security side and the cyber. So uh, there's multiple ways to show value coming back from an ROI, either through increased security, uh, increased hours and, and man count, if you're going to convert to a robotics or um, or um, intelligent data extraction techniques. All of those are very measurable. And we did that at HUD. We, we identified probably 75,000 hours in our IT modernizations efforts uh, at, at HUD. And that was outside the TMF fund. Mm -hmm. That was the IT modernization we were doing ourselves. But a CFO and a CIO just ought to have a strategy session. And the, I, I will guarantee every agency can probably identify 50 areas that this fund could be used for. Yeah. And then um, then it's just it's a matter of uh, putting the proposal together, showing where the value is, and uh, and then go with it. What should go on in those strategy sessions between the CIO and the CFO, or what are the topics that each side should be bringing to the table there, ready to discuss? So, um, what's really popular with the CIO right now is uh, you know web based and, and cloud adoption and, and converting from paper and making it easier to do processes inside. Also cyber, the CIO will, will very much focus on the cybersecurity side. The CFO is gonna very much focus on the operations. You know, how can I save manpower? How can I do things quicker, more efficient, more effective uh, with, a, with, a, with a goal of increasing controls? And that's how we approach that at, at HUD. Uh, we had a plethora of material weaknesses, significant deficiencies, disclaimers, and all of it, if not most of it could be um, you know, could be uh, cured or remediated with some IT modernization. So, uh, you know, this is one of those things you have that strategy session, Francis, 
you're going to come up with a laundry list that you could spend that whole billion dollars at one agency. Yeah, <laughs> That's a bit of an exaggeration, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, so once you get the money, once an agency receives an award from the TMF fund, what's the CFO's role in helping to track the progress of the program and participate yeah. in being aware of what's going on regarding payback. Because one of the things that I, at HUD, Gary Washington from agriculture was on talking about the programs they've paid back. And it strikes yeah. me if you have a revolving fund and it doesn't revolve, you don't have a revolving fund for very long. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so what you do is once you identify the projects you want to implement, uh, the TMF board had a process in place where you had accountability back to them and, and, and your reporting. And the reporting was also not only on uh, the implementation and how that was going, but what is the payback and you're getting what you want. And you just put processes in place. And again, manpower is relatively easy to measure. Uh, increased security is relatively easy to measure. Uh, and efficiency on, on uh, improved IT is, is easy, easy to measure, but it's important. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you need to uh, understand what you're doing and and uh, report that back to the TMF. And I actually think, Francis, this is one of those things the TMF fund for these agencies ought to be thinking about is just to start. I mean, if the CIO and CFO are not working together previously and the TMF fund brings them together, again, the TMF fund is not going to cure all of the agency's needs, but it's, it'll start the process and it'll be give them the ability to identify where yeah, all the areas that they can improve. From a financial management perspective, Irv, did you manage the ongoing operation, implementation of that TMF project differently than you would have an appropriated project? Or once you get to that, once you have the money, is it pretty much the same yeah, principle? I found so it to on? be, I found it to be a little similar. I would say there's probably a little more reporting back on the, uh, the progress to the TMF. They really wanted to know how the funds were being used. Uh, so, you know, the accountability of dollars I found to be pretty comparable, but there was a lot more reporting back to the TMF, at least in the early stages. I'm not sure if they're still doing that mm -hmm. or not. Again, we were an early adopter. I think we were one of the first two or three agencies to uh, to get the funds. Yeah. What 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 else does that maybe doesn't appear on first blush? Does the CFO do in any aspect of this in the proposal, in the uh, implementation, in the payback, in the closeout, any of that? Or Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I wasn't aware of the TMF until the proposal was, uh, was just about ready to be submitted. So I would say, I guess this starts out of the CIO office, but it's really important the CIO engage the CFO. And we had to change over to the CIO and the, uh, the, the, the successor to the original was uh, worked very closely with me. So I think it's really important that CIO recognize that you need to get other departments involved. CFOs, very critical. You know, you got the operation folks. Um, and also the CMF fund, again, is not ever, never just about the IT. There's plenty of opportunities in HR and procurement for IT modernization. There are two areas that you know, if we had more time, we would have spent a, um, a, a lot more effort going down that path if we got a second bat at this thing. Well, and you're getting right at the core of why Fatara became a thing in the first place, and that's to drive uh, interaction and collaboration among all yes. four of those really important jobs at the top of every agency, Irv. A exactly right. And uh, the, the amount of um, efficiency and effectiveness that can improve operations in the HR side and the procurement side is uh, that was a wealth of uh, opportunity and uh, we just ran out of time. <laughs>
Irv Dennis, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. You can read more about the TMF and the awards that are coming in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Never trust, always verify is the essence of zero trust. If you want to secure your organization, you need to verify more than just users. You also need to secure devices. Tanium can help you gain clarity and control across all endpoints to secure your perimeter. Visit tanium.com slash federal to learn more. Federal agencies may be taking more risk in contracting than they need to. Civilian agencies use time and materials contracts about 11% of the time. Tim DiNapoli is Managing Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Tim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I note in your most recent work, as I said, civilian agencies, 11% of their contracts are time and materials. The Defense Department only uses them 1% of the time. What's your sense of the reason for that? Welcome, Tim. Well, thank you, Francis, for having me on board. Um, a couple of things. You know, time and material contracts, um, you know, we use a lot of them in the government. $139 billion between fiscal year 2017 and 2021, with the vast majority being spent by the civilian agencies. And so what we try to do in this engagement is look at the factors that um, prompted civilian agencies to use time and materials to the extent that they did, as well as why did DOD uh, do what they did? And are there any lessons learned that can be shared either way? So what are the uh, lessons learned that you found in, in taking this look and, and that agencies should share with each other? Well, a couple of things. So and we should probably step back and say, well, what are time and material contracts? So from a personal experience, I just had to bring a, a car back into the shop, right? It had a coolant link and they were charging me $60 per hour for labor plus parts. And the bill came out to, you know, six hours of labor and 115 parts. So it's a $500 bill. Uh, these guys were good guys and I trust them implicitly, but if they weren't as honest as they were and as good quality, they could charge me nine hours per labor, right? Add more profit. Um, or what if I had a fleet of cars that were all clunkers and I was in the shop each and every day and all of a sudden that bill became exorbitant across the, uh, you know, the, across the year. Would it be better for me to do a different acquisition strategy? You know, maybe I should try to price some of those things so I get a monthly payment for, for labor, or maybe I should just change my acquisition strategy completely and get a better set of cars, or maybe take public transportation. So this is what this report is about. Can agencies or are agencies doing their due diligence, looking for ways to reduce the, the use of time material contracts where appropriate? And what are some of those key things that they can do? You know, what are the kind of the best practices for deciding when a time and materials contract makes sense and when it's not as good an idea? So they're definitely a, a tool in the toolkit, right? So it's not that we shouldn't use them. You just have to use them when appropriate. Um, the key thing is, do you have a good idea of what your requirements are? And in time and materials, you use them when you don't know that, right? When there's some uncertainty about how often you're going to use a service. We looked at um, 21 contracts across seven agencies. All of them were justified in terms of using a TNM. Right? They all made sense to us just based on the documentation and talking to the contracting officers that there was a reasonable level of uncertainty that you know, necessitated the use of the time and materials. But in some cases, we saw either the agencies or the contracting officers taking an additional level of effort to 
see whether or not they could price certain elements of their contracts as a fixed price basis, you know, kind of creating a hybrid contract, or the agencies themselves paying more leadership attention to um, uh, the use of time materials. The, the example that we have in the report is the there's an army contracting command that established a goal of reducing their use of time and material contracts by 50% over the next three years. And they were on that path to doing that. So, you know, both agency level as well as contracting officers have to uh, do their part to make sure they're using the contract type appropriately. What should those leaders, as you write in this work, without increased leadership attention, uh, agencies may miss opportunities to use lower risk contract types. What should those leaders be doing in that examination process? I mean, it's kind of an informal auditing process, it sounds like to me. It is. You know, you look at the data just to see what the trends are in using uh, time and material contracts. Do they see anything that seems uh, worthy of looking a little bit deeper into it? So that's one thing. And two, I think you need to encourage the contracting officers and the program managers to be able to sit down uh, where it makes sense, go through the contracts, uh, identify those elements where you have good history, so that you can say, well, this seems to make sense to move it to a different type of contracting approach, like a fixed price basis, and, and, and go from there. It takes time, right? You get a little comfort level with using time and materials. You get the service you need. You're not so worried about the cost per se, because you get, you get the service, and that's important for achieving mission. So taking the time, working your way through the contract, identifying those opportunities, you know, you need leadership encouragement to make sure that that happens and, and to encourage the folks to take the time to do that. Obviously, once you have a contract, it's a contract, but is, are there opportunities? Was it even in the scope of your work to look at the opportunities that as contracts, as T&M contracts expire and need to be renewed because the government wants to continue uh, obtaining that product or service to convert the contract type so that you don't kind of perpetuate the cycle? Well, Francis, it sounds like you were on the Federal Acquisition Regulatory <laughs> Council because no. the FAR already requires that, right? So something that uh, the FAR says you got to do as a contracting officer, look for those opportunities. Avoid protracted use of time and material contracts, uh, whether you're exercising an option or going for your acquisition strategy for the next contract type. So you're supposed to do that. Um, what we saw in the 21 contracts that we looked at, that eight of the 21 already had fixed price elements or some other you know, or cost type uh, elements in it. So we knew that contracting officers were doing their due diligence in, in many cases. And sometimes we thought, yeah, they could do a little bit better and maybe agencies give them that little nudge to, uh, to, to make that happen. I appreciate the shout out, but if I was on the FAR Council, I wouldn't have had to have asked the question. I would have known it already, Tim. <laughs> Um, you make recommendations in this work, and you've talked a little bit about kind of the broad framework of them. Specifically, you made recommendations to the Air Force, State Department, Social Security Administration. Anything more specifically directed toward those agencies than what we've already discussed as far as what agencies should do? Or is it pretty much along that structure, too? Pretty much along that line. I think we had one additional recommendation to the State Department uh, to clarify some of their guidance. Uh, there are a couple of their contracting officers didn't think they needed to do one of the key protections uh, in using uh, a time materials, you're supposed to make a determination of findings, right? Uh, it says, here's why we think a time material contract is appropriate. Some contracting officers did not believe they needed to do that in certain cases. We just told state that they should remind the 
remind them that they do indeed need to do so. Tim DiNapoli of the Government Accountability Office. Great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to the work Tim and his team did in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the Daily Scoop Podcast. This show is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.